Hello again, fight fans, and welcome to episode number 118 of The Neutral Corner. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Real quick, before we get started, guys, I don't plug it a lot, but it's been a while. I need to talk about it. Patreon. Please, 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 if you could donate anything to the channel to help us do what we do. Um, we're completely independent. Those of you who follow me on Twitter, follow me on Facebook, you've seen me post some things recently about being an independent entity in the boxing media and how that allows me to speak my mind more, but it also costs me more because I'm not aligned to any one publication. I'm not getting that regular paycheck. So everything that we get on Patreon, we put right back into the channel. And with uh, some of the news you probably heard recently about one of the more popular boxing podcasts uh, coming to an end, um, The Neutral Corner, we're poised and in position to really take over for Monday Night Boxing Podcast. I want to get this call-in feature set up this year. Anything you guys can do to help us along, to help us get there, please check out patreon.com slash Montero on Boxing. And also, I'm going to remind you, again, Apple Podcast, iTunes, find The Neutral Corner, Montero on Boxing. Follow us. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Tell your peeps. SoundCloud, Stitcher, same deal. All right, let's get right into it with news and notes. All right, so before I get into the latest and greatest with all the rumors and the Golovkin debacle and the Canelo debacle, all that stuff that's going on, uh, there is a fight card that actually is a nice little card that's been put together for May 12th at the Turning Stone Casino in Verona, New York. It's going to be on regular HBO. Saddam Ali is fighting Liam Smith as mandatory for that WBO junior bantamweight title, or I'm sorry, junior middleweight title. And Ray Vargas is defending his WBC super bantamweight title against Avat Havanesian. Um, I like that card, man. That's a nice doubleheader. Depending on what Triple G does a week before on May 5th, perhaps it'll be a triple header because we'll see a replay of Golovkin. Uh, we still don't know who Golovkin's going to fight May 5th, but I'm telling you right now, it's, it's between Sergei Derevyanchenko, who is the IBF mandatory, who Team Golovkin would prefer not to fight on this short of notice. But Lou DiBella, his promoter, is making a strong push for the IBF to play by their rules. And the rules stipulate that Golovkin might have to fight him. At this short of notice, though, even the IBF, they're a stickler for their rules, man. I just can't see them forcing this upon Golovkin at this time. And then, of course, it's Spike O'Sullivan, who is promoted by Golden Boy Promotions, who would be uh, an almost guaranteed win for Golovkin, even on a month's notice. And, uh, you know, there's a possibility that that fight could be brought to StubHub Center in Los Angeles, technically Carson, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. If that happens, um, I actually prefer that, not just because I live in LA and I could drive right down the street, but because... A fight between whether it's Golovkin, Derevyanchenko, or Golovkin, O'Sullivan. And then there's also the undefeated Mexican fighter that they've talked about. I just don't think he's anywhere near ready. I just, I, that fight doesn't make any sense to me. I understand the demographics involved, but I, I just, I can't even make sense of that fight. I think Spike O'Sullivan's more qualified, honestly. Um, those fights, you know, at StubHub Center, they're StubHub Center level fights. And that's not to put down the fights. I understand the predicament that Tom Loeffler 
and, and and team Golovkin are in right now it's not their fault they're in this predicament but come on let's be honest guys a Golovkin Derevyanchenko fight is a good solid fight it really is but is that a Vegas fight does that belong even at MGM Grand which is a smaller venue than um than T-Mobile Arena I don't think so I mean you get the site fee there you get the Vegas money you get the Vegas whales Loeffler would do better financially but I don't see how that happens um I, I think it makes more sense at StubHub Center I don't know, man. If it's the difference between going HBO pay-per-view or regular HBO, you know, if you go to Vegas and you get more money, but you could do regular HBO, that'd be great. I tell you, I can tell you this much though. Peter Nelson and HBO, they're not ponying up the dough for that May 5th fight. So I'm pretty damn sure it's going to go HBO pay-per-view. It'd be great. It'd be great if it doesn't. It'd be, it'd be fantastic. But that's probably what's going to happen, guys. So maybe it stays pay-per-view. But it comes to StubHub Center where people can afford tickets. You don't have to go to Vegas and deal with the, the hotels and getting up there and all that stuff, the overpriced drinks, whatever. You could come down to StubHub, the, the, the war grounds where I think it would be a much, much more fun atmosphere. It'd feel like Golovkin Rubio felt. Uh, and if you, if you fight Spike O'Sullivan, it's going to be pretty much that level of matchup. Although I do think O'Sullivan would put up more of a fight than Rubio did. But for those of you who were there, and this is going back a few years, when Golovkin fought Marco Antonio Rubio, and I believe that was a mandatory fight at StubHub, that was really the start of when Triple G started to cross over with fans. I was there that night, and there was just a magic in the air. The fight was terrible. It didn't last long at all. But it wasn't about that. It was about the event. And Golovkin hasn't fought there since. So if these rumors are true, the latest, the greatest rumors that the fight might move to StubHub Center, whether it be Derevyanchenko or O'Sullivan, I would love to see it. But Vegas is still in play. It's still in play. All right. Um, Canelo Alvarez withdraws from the fight with Triple G May 5th. They had a press conference last week. It was on Tuesday. An email went out to certain media members inviting them to this press conference where pretty much uh, Team Canelo made a statement. It was your, you know, your typical apology. And he apologized to everybody, the fans and this and that. He didn't apologize to Triple G, though, <laughs> which I found interesting. And then there was a doctor up there from Mexico who did uh, constantly you know, repeated himself in English and Spanish, which, you know, how necessary was that? I, I understand that there was Mexican media there, but... Just every sentence was that your typical lawyered up bullshit. Or actually, the lawyer was going back and forth. They had, you had Team Canelo's lawyer there going back and forth in English and Spanish. And then you had this doctor talking about the clenbuterol issue in Mexico, which we already knew about. It just seemed like this template packaged kind of thing where they were trying to basically get these certain media members to send out a press release to copy what was said or film what was said and post it so that you had your press release and they could get up ahead of the April 18th hearing that Bob Bennett's going to have. It was also a professional courtesy to Tom Loeffler and Team Golovkin. Uh, Loeffler obviously said, hey guys, you know, can you work with me here so that he could get uh, as much promotion time as possible for his May 5th fight with Golovkin. So there's you know not as much of this... Canelo stuff blocking that promotion but really 
it, it's going to be there regardless because, like I said, you got the hearing on April 18th and there's going to be a suspension, and that's just a, a couple weeks before Golovkin's fight May 5th. So um, I was not invited to this press conference. And as a guy who's been accused of being a Golden Boy shill and a Canelo shill recently uh, for me trying to have a, an objective stance on this whole case, uh, I'm sh- I sure am doing a shitty job of it because – there were people of every pay grade in the media invited to this presser. People, uh, you know, below me in the business, and I'm not saying this to swing my dick around. I'm just telling you the way it is. People at my level and people far above my level. So they brought in, you know, people across the spectrum and uh, people who represent different demographic platforms uh, with their, you know, you know, the media platforms that they write for and post for. They brought electronic media. They brought print media. They brought, they brought YouTube media. So they brought everybody in. And I didn't get an invite. Now, I've been promoting Canelo fights for years. I, I covered Canelo Lara, Canelo Khan, Canelo Chavez. I traveled to cover those events. I covered the first fight between Canelo and Golovkin extensively. I did national radio segments. I did podcasts in the UK and in the United States, several of them talking about the fight. I've gone to every presser, every media event for those fights, and of course for the rematch. You guys saw my recent video from uh, the, the media event they had here in Los Angeles. I've done magazine stuff for Boxing Monthly, you know, previewing the first fight. So. All this considered, for me not to be invited to this press conference shows you just how doctored up it was, basically. And it's not that I take it as a slap in the face. I actually take it as a badge of honor because it does mean that people are paying attention to me asking the tough questions and being one of the few guys who's willing to do that shit. Now, look, some people ask tough questions on their little podcast, on their little platform that... The promoters don't see. The fighters don't see. Very, very rarely, though, are they asking the questions when the lights are on, the microphones are on, the cameras are on, and these guys can't hide. And you guys know I've done that. I've done it more than once. And because, yes, I have done work with Ring TV. I have done work with Ring, which is owned by Golden Boy. I have done work with people who work at Ring and with Golden Boy. I'm on a first-name basis with a lot of these people. But I'm not directly and exclusively linked to Golden Boy or any other platform, even Boxing Monthly. I'm doing this podcast for Boxing Monthly. I'm not exclusive to Boxing Monthly. I do work with all sorts of other platforms, right? So because of that, I speak my damn mind. Now, has it cost me you know, getting into Ring Magazine and, and, and calling some of these uh, fights for Golden Boy at some of these club shows at LA Fight Club and doing the live streaming broadcasts of the the weigh-ins for some of these fights that they've done? Yes. And I've been told that by people off the record, and I've kept it off the record, but I'm going to go ahead and put it on record right now. Some of my ranting and raving and some of my tough questions, including the post-fight press conference last year for Canelo Golovkin, has cost me work with Golden Boy Promotions. They do not want me around because I'm going to say tough things, I'm gonna ask tough questions, and I've gained a reputation for that in the business, at least with some of the American promoters. Maybe not internationally as much, but with the American promoters. So uh, that's why I wasn't invited. And I'm gonna talk about this more. I'm gonna do a rant video later this week. 
I've spent the last week or so talking to a few experts in the field of anti-doping, people that work with some of the labs, some of the anti-doping groups, and people who have just worked in the industry for over 20, 30 years, uh, both on the, the dirty side and the clean side. Some of the names I have to keep off the record. Some of the names I can tell you. I spent uh, over an hour talking with Victor Conti last Friday. We had an outstanding conversation and, um, you know, opened my eyes to a lot of things. I'm somebody who doesn't claim to be an expert on this stuff, but I'm willing to talk to the experts and I'm willing to ask questions. Does that mean sometimes I step in dog shit? I step over the line. I make mistakes sometimes. I misspeak. Uh, I present information that isn't the best or latest and greatest sometimes. Yes, there's always better information. But I am willing to present all sides, all the information and get the conversation started. That's what I'm trying to do here. That makes me a dangerous mofo. And I wasn't invited to this presser. I guess I am taking it personal to a degree. But guys, it shows you the intent. And I'll tell you right now, based on that, And the questions that weren't asked at that press conference, including by people who I love and respect in this business, but have financial interest involved in future job employment opportunities involved, it makes me suspicious of Team Canelo and of Golden Boy Promotions in relation to Team Canelo more than ever before. And I'm starting to lean more and more and more to the side that I could go on the record and say, Something was going on down there in Mexico between last September and this February. All right. Um, One more thing. Floyd Mayweather in Buckhead, which is a neighborhood in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I believe this was yesterday. Him and his entourage were there driving to a hotel. They had three cars. They pulled it to the hotel parking lot. Apparently, a car pulls up and starts shooting at him. No one gets hit except for one bodyguard in the leg. Floyd's got a lot of enemies, man. You, you do some shady things behind the scenes with some shady people, that stuff sticks around. Also, throwing money around and some of the stuff he says, some of the stuff he does, and is, you know some of the people he's related to. I don't know, man. That bullet might have been aimed for Floyd. I don't know. That's just my speculation. I have absolutely no evidence of that. But the police, the Atlanta police, are investigating this case, and they do believe it was a targeted attack. It was not a random attack. And basically, it was Floyd and a bunch of bodyguards and and friends and, you know, women that, well, were present, maybe because money was being exchanged or not, but uh, they were there. So really, the only famous person with a profile there was Floyd. So if this was a targeted attack and the Atlanta police have said that and Floyd was around and it was his car that got shot up, I don't know, man. I don't know what to think about all that. All right, so that's it with news and notes. It's more rumors and notes uh, this week. But um, look, the the schedule's a little dead right now, and we're basically kind of playing this waiting game with a few things. As I'm recording this, we don't know what's up with Golovkin. That announcement will be made this week, though. Hopefully they can do, you know, the best available thing in this shitty situation. We'll find out. But let's get into the review of what happened last week. All right, Saturday, April 7th at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. It was PBC on Showtime, and we had a triple header here. You know what? This was a good solid card, even though the co-main, oh, boy, that was bad. But I thought this first fight between Julian J. Rock Williams and Nathaniel Gallimore 
was very good. That was a tough, grueling fight. And there were adjustments being made in there, man. If you haven't seen this fight yet, check it out. Very, very underrated fight. And uh, J-Rock comes away with a <clears throat> majority decision. He battles through a cut under his right eye that was from a headbutt. I thought he worked through that cut pretty well. Uh, as I mentioned, it was a grueling fight. J-Rock started well, fighting on the outside, working behind the jab. But Galibor made some adjustments and started to find his range and started to get inside in the middle rounds, really started to do some work and bust up J-Rock a couple times. And I thought he buzzed him and, you know, wobbled him a couple times. His legs looked a little shaky there a couple times. So he had his moments in the middle rounds and made it really an even fight going into the late rounds. But from about the eighth, maybe it was the seventh, eighth round on, J-Rock made an adjustment. And he started mauling and grappling on the inside and really forcing his physical strength on Gallimore, pushing him back. It was all Gallimore could do for most of the late rounds uh, other than like hold on. He just basically kind of held on. He did get some counter shots off here and there, but he was being pushed back on a lot of them. He wasn't coming forward with them. And J-Rock ate some to land some, but I thought he clearly won this fight. He did some good inside fighting, some good crafty stuff down the stretch, and really forced his will on Gallimore late. Uh, so two of the judges scored at 117-110, 116-112. I thought those were good scores. I thought that clearly J-Rock won about eight rounds of this fight. But Judge Patricia Morse Jarman, Scored at 114-114, a draw. I tweeted about this today. She should be suspended by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. She's a Nevada-based judge. There's no reason for her not to be suspended. And they should take her in and review the fight with her and ask her how the hell she saw six rounds for Gallimore, who I thought won three, maybe four rounds. This fight was not that difficult to score. There were a few swing rounds, but if you split the spring, uh, swing rounds down the middle, again, J-Rock wins this fight 116-112. Uh, if you favor him a little bit, you know, um, then the scores can get as wide as like 118-110 or something. But um, clearly, he won this fight. So I tweeted about that today. And guys, look, for those of you who are on Twitter and don't follow me yet, follow me on Twitter because, you know, I record this show once a week. There's a lot of news that happens throughout the week. And a lot of opinions and analysis that I give and I tweet all the time. Plus, I do some fun trolling and, you know, mess with some of these idiots and casuals out there. It's a lot of fun. Not that, I, you know, casual fans are good. I love casual boxing fans. We need more of them. I'm talking about casual boxing fans who try to act like they know it all. I had a guy last week, uh, some kid out of New York, try to tell me that uh, I don't know boxing. And he obviously didn't know who I was, so I told him to Google me. And then he comes back later and started some race-baiting bullshit, blocked. Basically, when you start the race-baiting shit, that's how I know that you're taking a knee. And uh, yeah, that's how I know I won by TKO. All right, so too many people sleeping on J-Rock after his loss to Jamal Charlo in 2016. That was a tough fight, right? And uh, Charlo looked really, really good that night. There was no drug testing for that fight. I asked the question to Richard Schaefer. In a post-fight press conference, nobody else did. Richard Schaefer, I'm not his favorite person ever since. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, uh, you know, back to uh, what I was talking about here. That was a tangent. Um, I still think J-Rock is a top junior middleweight. I think he's a top 10 junior middleweight. 
Name me 10 or more that are better. He's kind of stiff. He can move his head a little bit more. He gets a little stationary. He thinks a little bit too much. When he just fights, I think he's a pretty damn good junior middleweight. I don't know because he's so stationary sometimes. He doesn't move his head enough. He's going to get caught. But I believe he's going to work himself into position now where he's eventually going to get uh, a mandatory opportunity at one of Jarrett Hurd's titles. So if and when that fight happens, and it, it probably would be next year or something, I'd like to see it, man. He's 25-1-1 one one with 15 knockouts. He's still a quality fighter. Don't sleep on this guy. And for Gallimore, for Nathaniel Gallimore, he showed some real metal in this fight too. I want to see him again. All right, so second fight. This is the co-main between James DeGale, Caleb Truex. This is a rematch of their uh, fight last year where Truex upset, scored the upset of the year to, uh, to take DeGale's title. DeGale wins a unanimous decision to take back his IBF super middleweight title. Let's talk about this one a little bit because there's some divided opinion here. I thought it was a close fight, and I thought you could make arguments for either guy winning. Here's the difference. DeGales deducted a point in round 10 for use of the shoulder. He was getting kind of frustrated. Truax was using the head, but I don't think Truax was doing it in a dirty way, a malicious way. But DeGale was kind of getting cut up, and his face was getting beat up a little bit. I thought a lot of that was from Truax punching. But... Um, he kind of sh tried to shoulder him. I think, in, yeah, it was the 10th round. Gets deducted a point there. So that one point deduction to have DeGale winning, you got to score at least seven rounds for him. Now, I could see seven rounds for either fighter, but one of these scorecards was real wide. More on that in a second. Um, DeGale also had to work through a cut from a punch in round three. Truax was cut under the right eye in round seven and under the left eye in round eight. It was an Ugly, ugly fight. A lot of mauling and grappling and back and forth. DeGale did stun Truax early. but So the fight actually started off pretty well. But as this thing got into the middle rounds, it was just ugly. It was at times difficult to score. And that's why I said uh, it could go either way, depending on how you scored a couple of these swing rounds. You can make a legitimate argument for either guy winning this fight. But Judge John McKay scored it 117-110 for James DeGale. I don't know how the hell you see it that way. Remember, the point deduction, okay? So that's really 118-110. That's 10 rounds to 2. I don't see how anybody could give either of these fighters 10 rounds in that kind of a fight. And when I talk about the punch numbers in a second, you'll see why. McKay is not a Nevada judge. I want to say he's from the East Coast. I want, maybe New Jersey. So I don't think Nevada can suspend them, but they could suspend them from doing any Vegas fights or Nevada fights for a while. And he shouldn't. And I tweeted about that again today as well. I started a new hashtag called Judge Watch. So guys, if you're on Twitter and there's a fight with a horrible score, tweet it at me with the hashtag Judge Watch. Let's get Judge Watch trending and build up uh, a bunch of... Uh, a collection of shitty scorecards with that hashtag. So a year, two years, three years down the road, we can, I can present that hashtag to Bob Bennett, to the uh, officials here in uh, California with California State Athletic Commission, Andy Foster, and I could show them all these examples and put these judges on blast with, with you know, a list of these things. So 
Judge watch, hashtag judge watch, okay? Anytime you see a shitty scorecard, use that hashtag. Let's get it going. All right, punch numbers. Truax, he lands 103 out of 471, 22%. DeGale lands 99 out of 327 for 30%. Pretty close. Truax threw more, landed a few more, DeGale more accurate, which, yeah, pretty much if you knew the scattering report on these two fighters, you figure that's how it'd go. DeGale landed more jabs, 31 to 16. Truax landed more power punches, 87 to 68. Close fight, right? Here's the key. DeGale outlanded Truax 23 to 7 overall in the final two rounds. So I think that late push in the 11th, 12th round, where he landed more than three times the amount of punches Truax did, was enough to pull out the fight on two of those scorecards, which I think uh, it was 114, 113, so seven rounds to five. That was probably the difference. DeGale just finished a little bit stronger, and that's why I didn't have a problem with the decision. I just had a problem with John McKay's scorecard. Where does DeGale go now? I'm sorry, but Benavidez, Ramirez, those guys mop the floor with him and knock him out. They don't just beat him, they brutally knock him out. It would take a few rounds. Styles make fights, right? But David Benavidez, Gilberto Ramirez, they're pressure fighters. They're big. They're strong. They're young. They're like, you know, like a brick coming at you nonstop. And I think they'd wear DeGale down and get that chin up in the air. His chin flies around up in the air now, man. And it could be tagged with combinations in both Benavidez and Ramirez throwing combinations. Those two guys would brutally beat him down, and knock him out about the 8th, ninth round. DeGale wants none of that. So, where does he go from here? There's domestic-level matchups for him. A Chris Eubank Jr. fight? Chris Eubank Jr. is so fundamentally flawed that perhaps DeGale could outbox him. Yet at the same time, Eubank does have a lot of energy. He is athletic. There's no way in hell DeGale could hurt Eubank. And Eubank could punch a little. So that might be dangerous for him. Then you've got George Groves and Callum Smith. They're going to fight in the World Boxing Super Series finale. Does DeGale try to wait them out and fight the winner? Or does he fight Truax for a third time in the UK? For the record, Truax says he wants the third fight. DeGale said, quote unquote, like, if the fans want it, we can do it again, which is basically his way of saying, eh, maybe. <laughs> so James DeGale, 32 years old, but it's an old 32. Seems to have lost a step or two, maybe three. Maybe he's lost three freaking steps. I never thought that this guy was a pound-for-pound level player, but he was at one point one of the best super middleweights in the world. He legitimately was. Now, I, I don't put him in the top five. I don't know how you can. Um, not the strongest division in the world. He's definitely a top 10, but I just I don't even think he beats George Groves or Callum Smith at this point. But he's competitive at least. But the thing is, because of his pedigree, his pedigree, and uh, he's got the title, you know, he's got options. So we know he's going to fight on, and we'll see what he does. All right, main event: Jarrett Hurd, split decision over Irizlandi Lara, unifies the IBF and WBA titles. First of all, standing ovation for Irizlandi Lara. That's me giving him the slow clap. Look, I've been highly critical of Irizlandi Lara. 
but I've actually covered a lot of his fights and with the right style fighter. I was ringside when you fought Alfredo Angulo. That was an exciting fight. You get this guy in the, with the right style matchup where he's forced to fight and he can be exciting. A lot of these technical fighters talk about Vladimir Klitschko. We talk about uh, maybe Bernard Hopkins. We talk about guys like that. Even Floyd Mayweather. Morris, well, you know what? Floyd's in, in his own little category. But Klitschko, Hopkins, Lara, those types of guys, their mentality is to not take a risk. Their mentality is to do what they need to do to win and keep the winning streak going and keep moving forward. But if you force them to fight, that's when we find out what these guys are made of. Now, Jarrett Hurd forced Irislandi Lara to fight. Has Lara lost a step? Is he a little bit past his best? Yes, of course. But that doesn't... Look, he's fought other guys recently, and he's looked good. He, he hasn't been forced to fight like this. Do you think Irislandi Lara changed overnight and he wants to stand to trade with Hurd? No. He did that in this fight because he had to stand his ground. He couldn't stay on the outside and let Hurd just beat up on him. So there was a lot of times in those later rounds where he backed up down to the ropes and let Hurd come in on him so that he could try to be close. Or even in the middle of the, of the ring, he would get close to try to smother the power. But as such, he would get kind of touched up. And you saw at the end of the fight how badly his face was busted up because of the chopping close punches from Hurd. But Lara would rather take those short chopping punches than long punches that have full extension on them. So uh, this guy was forced to fight in a way that he normally wouldn't like to, but he showed he's got real metal. He's got, he's got heart. He's got balls. That knockdown in the 12th round with Lara's eye that was so busted up, I think it was the right eye, and it was a left hook that clipped him, that dropped him. He did not see that freaking punch. He did not see it. Goes down bad, snot's coming out of his nose, drool and blood is coming out of his mouth. But he gets up and he dusts himself off and he finishes the damn fight. Now, if that knockdown happened at the beginning of the 12th round, he probably doesn't finish the fight. But still, the way he got up, what balls, son. Can we give Lara some damn credit? We can say the same thing about Klitschko and some of his tougher fights. When he was in there with guys who pushed him, he had to respond. And he showed he does have heart. Now, sticking with the Cubans, Luis Ortiz was pushed in his fight with Deontay Wilder. He showed heart. Guillermo Rigondeaux, he was pushed in his fight with Vasya Lomachenko, forced to fight. What did he do? He quit. I don't like saying this word, but Guillermo Rigondeaux is a quitter. When the going got tough, he got going. We did not see that from Luis Ortiz, from Irislandi Lara. So let's not say all these Cubans are created equal, okay? Because they're not. And let's give the guys respect who deserve respect. But now, Jarrett Hurd. Is he a weight bully? I've heard this argument made. Is Jarrett Hurd a weight bully? Is he doing some, some, uh, some performance-enhancing drugs to help him cut weight? Blah, blah, blah. Guys, he isn't even rated by the WBC. As I mentioned before, he holds the IBF and WBA titles. But you know what? Jarrett Hurd volunteered to be in the WBC's clean boxing program. Not rated by them, not fighting for one of their titles, but he volunteered to be in their program. That is what I'm saying. That is a good look. 
This guy sacrifices himself to make the weight. Do I like day before weigh-ins? No. Are they going away? Hell no. The best we have with the current situation in boxing is the WBC's prior to the fight weigh-ins, 30-day and 7-day. I love those. And then I love the IBF rehydration clause where you can only gain 10 more pounds. And now Hurd has that IBF title. He will have to adhere to that rule. So, well, actually, he has unified titles. So maybe there's a loophole for him to get out there because the IBF did change uh, their rule for unified title fights. So uh, you know what? I'll have to ask around about that. Let me get back to that. Either way, Jarrett Hurd has always made weight. He's volunteered for further drug testing through the WBC program, which he doesn't even have to because he's not rated by them. You know, do I love the system in boxing right now with these prior day weigh-ins? No. But like I said, not going away. More than anything else, guys, it's a way for the promoters to get an extra day of promotion for the fight. The day before the fight, especially these big Vegas fights, these weigh-ins now are a big, big deal. They're charging tickets to some of these damn weigh-ins. You think they're going to stop doing that? Hell no. The best thing we could do with this situation is for all the sanctioning organizations, the Association of Boxing Commissions, to adopt across the board the IBF rehydration rule and the WBC 30 and 7-day pre-fight weigh-ins. If all the sanctioning organizations adhere to that and the ABC force them to do it, I think that would really, really help with some of the quote-unquote weight bully stuff. But right now for Jarrett Hurd, he's not pulling a move like Daniel Jacobs pulled on Gennady Golovkin. It's not the same thing. That was being a weight bully. And, you know, I couldn't blame Daniel Jacobs for doing it. He bent the rules. Actually, you know, he really played by the rules. He just dumped one of the titles. But Hurd, he hasn't broken any rules. He hasn't bent any rules. So... He can make the damn weight as long as he can make 154 and do it naturally. You you can't really call him a bully, guys. He's an athlete. Every athlete is going to find a way to find, uh, to have some sort of advantage in their career. And for Hurd, it's being big and tall and freakishly strong for that division. Will he make that weight forever? No. Hurd is going to turn 28 years old this year. So he's getting closer to 30. Once he hits his 30s, he's a middleweight. He's going to end his career as a super middleweight. But for now, he can make that weight. And as long as he does it legally, you know, look, man, that's his advantage. When you fight Jared Hurd, you know what you're going up against. So, all right. What's next for him? He's got two of the titles. He's the number one guy at junior middleweight. I want to see him fight Jamel Charlo, who is ringside, who has the WBC title, who Showtime interviewed. Um... Saddam Ali has a WBO title. I talked about him earlier. He's fighting Liam Smith um, next month. You know, that fight's not going to happen. Saddam Ali, I, I highly doubt, should he be successful against Liam Smith, that he's going to want to go up against Jared Hurd or Jamel Charlo. But let's see Jamel Charlo and Jared Hurd. I'm going on record right now. That is one of the best fights that could be made in boxing. Now, to be fair... I don't think that fight's going to happen this year. I don't expect it to. Bigger fights take time to build. But why not have these guys? And Charlo has a fight coming up, I think, June 9th. Charlo, yeah, June 9th. He doesn't have an opponent yet, but it's going to be a layup, and he's going to score a knockout. So by this summer, Jamel's going to turn 28 this year. 
He's going to be 31-0 with 16 knockouts. Hurd, 28 this year. He's 22-0 with 15 knockouts. Hurd uh, is 6'1", 76-inch reach. Jermel, 5'11", 73-inch reach. Jermel punches harder and he's faster. Hurd is bigger and naturally stronger. These two go together like peanut butter and jelly, style-wise. Why not have them fight an interim fight later this year in the fall on the same damn card on Showtime and announce the two of them are going to fight next spring? Next spring, have them fight. If you want to, I would do the preliminary fights at Barclays this fall and have them fight each other in Las Vegas next spring. I think that would be a great, great event, man. So that's the way it should go. Hopefully that's what happens, but if you look at the way the PBC has been doing business with these fights that would be so easy to make, how long do we have to wait for Keith Thurman and Daniel Daniel Garcia? That took too long. And even in this junior middleweight division, Lara's had that WBA title since 2014. Jermall Charlo, the other Charlo, had the IBF title going back to 2015 before he moved up to middleweight. There hasn't been any unification. Until now, finally, Lara, after having that title for, what, four years, unified titles, Herd's got both. Let's complete the unification. A Herd-Charlo fight. The winner of that is a bona fide, proven, top 10 pound-for-pound fighter. It would have credentials to back it up. They'd be the legitimate, undisputed junior middleweight champion of the world because nobody rates Saddam Ali on their level. Let's see it, man. We could be patient. But next spring is the expiration date on that fight. Also on this card, Sergio Mora wins a split decision over Alfredo Angulo. To be fair, I haven't seen this fight. There was no reason for me to watch it. Uh, Coming in, Angulo had lost four of his last six. In my opinion, he shouldn't be fighting right now with all the issues he's had. He's now lost five of his last seven. Uh, This was an eight-rounder. I just don't quite understand it other than to keep these guys busy and get them some money, which I understand it in that respect. Anyway, two judges had it 78-74 for Mora. Most of the people I talked to who were there said Mora clearly won the fight, but guess who scored it? 77-75 for Alfredo Angulo. You guessed it. Everybody's favorite judge, Adelaide Bird. How is this woman still scoring fights? It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. She turns in a shitty scorecard at least once a year. At least once a year, she turns in a card like this where her score is completely different than the other two judges. It's never in unison where all three judges have a crappy score or maybe her and another judge have a similar score and one guy goes the other way. It's always her being completely off from the other two. She does this at least once a year. And she does it in MMA as well. Because I I believe she also judges MMA fights. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't watch UFC. But I believe she also, because that commission there does both, I believe she judges fights there. And I've heard she's turned in shitty scorecards there. It just defies logic. This woman is known as consistently one of the worst, most unpredictable judges in boxing i say unpredictable because there are times where she overly favors the boxer quote unquote as she did last year with canelo golovkin and then there's times where she overly favors the slugger 
like in this case with Angulo and Mora. So she's inconsistent with the way she scores fights, man. She's just a freaking nut. Anyway, Sunday, April 8th in Bangkok, Pong Seklek Wang Jangkem returned from a five-year layoff. Yo, number one, can, can I get some props for that pronunciation? I'm going to go ahead and repeat that. Pong Seklek Wang Jangkem. Come on, that's on point. That, come on, give me some props on pronouncing that Thai name. The reason why I pronounce that name so well is because I've said it a hundred times. Wang Jangkem is one of the better uh, Thai fighters ever, one of the better little fighters of the last generation. But he's 40 years old now, hasn't fought since 2013, came back to fight this eight-rounder. I don't know why. When's a unanimous decision? He's now 91-5-2 with 47 knockouts. I don't quite understand what the plan is here. Does he plan on making a comeback and, and fighting on? Because I think that would be a bad move. He's coming back in a very loaded division, and he's well past his best. But if he was just, you know, if he missed the ring and wanted to get busy, again, one of the best tie fighters ever, um, and he's a celebrity there, so I, I get it. That's it with all the action last week, guys. Uh, not a lot going on this week to talk about, but we'll go ahead and preview it anyway. Thursday, April 12th at the Fantasy Springs Casino in Indio, California. Golden Boy Promotions is back on ESPN2. And in the main event, Francisco Vargas taking on Rod Salka in the 10-rounder. Salka is famous, or I should say infamous, from the two rounds he spent with Danny Garcia in August of 2014 where he was dropped three times and KO'd in two of the most uh, one-sided rounds you'll ever see in a pathetic, pathetic fight for Garcia. That was just Al Heyman matchmaking 101 right there. And Vargas, look, been one of the more exciting little fighters in the sport in recent years. Went on a tear as far as his level of opponents, man. He went from uh, Takashi Miura, Orlando Salido, Miguel Burchelt. Took a lot of punishment in those fights, but gave us a lot of excitement. Against Salido, that was the fight of the year. And even though that was a draw, I actually felt Vargas won that fight. Fought Steven Smith last December after 11 months off after that tough, tough loss to Burchelt, where he took a serious amount of punishment. Now coming back against Salka. Uh, I, I guess this is just a stay busy fight for him. They're trying to, uh, Golden Boy is, to try to preserve him a little bit, maybe to get him in there with one last big fight. We'll see what happens, but obviously I favor him big over Selka. Uh, even though, you know, Vargas has taken a lot of punishment, he's just levels above Selka. Uh, that should be a one-sided fight. If it's not, it's a clear indication Vargas needs to hang him up. But I actually, I favor him big in that fight. Also, Kazakh lightweight Adar Sharabayev, who is 7-0. East LA super lightweight Jonathan Navarro, who is 13-0. And San Diego super lightweight Gennaro Gomez, who's 7-0, are fighting on the undercard. Friday, April 13th at the Armory in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a Fox Sports 1 card. In the main event, Jamal James fights Abel Ramos. James is a Minneapolis fighter, so he's the hometown guy. He's going to have the, the hometown fans behind him. Welterweight fighter. Uh, he's 22-1 with 10 knockouts. His only loss was, was to uh, your Dennis Ugas good Cuban fighter, so there's no shame in that. Ramos is from Arizona, 18-2, with two draws, 13 KOs. His only losses were to Regis Progre and Ivan Bronchek. No shame in those losses, so I expect a good scrap there in that main event. Also, Edner Cherry, the Bahamian uh, 
natural. He was born in the Bahamas, but now fights out of Florida. The Bahamian uh, veteran taking on Dennis Galarza, who's a Brooklyn fighter. And uh, that's that card on Fox Sports 1. Sunday, April 15th. This is the best card of the weekend from Yokohama, Japan. And this will be on ESPN2. This is part of the benefit of that top-ranked deal with ESPN. Ryoto Murata, the middleweight titleist, 13-1 with 10 knockouts, fighting an Italian fighter, Emanuele Felice Blandomira, for the first defense of his WBA regular middleweight title. Of course, we all know Gennady Golovkin is the real champion, but you know how that goes with WBA. Murata's 13-1 with 10 knockouts, as I said. That only loss was to Hassan Dadam in a fight that he clearly won, but we all remember what happened. The WBA mandated rematch. He came back. He won it big. So he shouldn't have a blemish on that title. I favor him big over the Italian Blonde Mura. And, uh, but I applaud ESPN2 for picking this up. I think it's going to be fun to watch. And the co-main, Daigo Higa, 15-0, 15 knockouts, defending his WBC flyweight title for the third time against Nicaraguan Christopher Rosales. Guys, if you haven't seen Higa fight yet, all action, all the time. One of my favorite little fighters. And this guy, you know, Superfly, that series that Tom Woffler's got going. If there's a way to get this guy involved in that series, man, I'd love to freaking see it. This guy's action-packed. That's all we got going on this week, guys. A little low on the schedule right now. Again, we're kind of in this holding pattern, waiting to see what happens. With We, we know Canelo's going to get suspended, but what's going to happen with Golovkin? Who's he going to fight? Where is he going to fight him? My prediction is still Spike O'Sullivan, and I, I think it's still very possible it goes to Vegas. Maybe it comes to StubHub. But if they do that fight, it keeps the deal with Canelo Alvarez alive for the end of this year, at the end of his, what I believe will be six-month suspension. But yeah, we're kind of in this holding pattern, but we do got some good stuff coming up. So um, more and more news and rumors to talk about next week, I'm sure. And um, watch out for my rant video later this week where I'll talk a little more about anti-doping, um, some new insights I have into the Canelo situation, and just um, hair testing, hair sample testing, which um, I've been presented with some more um, recent, newer, latest, and greatest information, which makes me think that it's absolutely uh, a, a test that we need to be doing more of. So I'll be talking about that later this week, guys. That's it for now. I'll see you at the fights.